scripture reading for this morning is from the book of Acts, chapter 28, verses 17 through 31. Paul had just arrived in Rome. After three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews, and when they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. When they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. And they said to him, We have received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here have reported or spoken any evil about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are, for with regard to this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. From morning till evening he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed, after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, Go to this people and say, You will indeed hear, but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear. And their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. He lived there two whole years at his own expense, and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Father, I do thank you so much for your grace toward us in Christ. I thank you so much, Father, for the gift of so much technology that we get to use in our culture, Father, and even when it doesn't go well, it still goes really well compared to other places in the world. And so, Father, we thank you for the gift of this grace. We thank you so much for the gift of Brett and the hard work that he puts into this week after week, month after month, year after year, Father, and thank you for the team that is around him. And Father, I just pray that you bless him and keep him and make your face to shine upon him, O God. I pray that you'd return upon his head a hundredfold for all the kind service that he's given to this church. And I pray, Lord, that we'd have a heart to see that and to appreciate it. And now, Lord, I ask you to use your word today powerfully in our lives. I pray that you'd use it today to shape a way of life in us. I pray that you would use it to give us a humble boldness and an unhindered passion to preach the gospel in the world. The truth is, Lord, that you are building your church and nothing will stop you. Father, sometimes circumstances look bleak and even impossible, and yet Jesus is on the move. His name is on the rise. He will be exalted among all nations, and nothing will stop this from happening. So please, Lord, please, with all my heart, I pray, use your word today to encourage your people and to set us on fire to preach the gospel to this world. We love you. 
We thank you for what you'll do in the mighty and matchless name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, it doesn't take a prophet to see that America is in the midst of an intense culture war, one that'll have not only national but global effects for generations to come, to be sure. The roots of this war, I think, go back at least to the 1940s and the end of the World War II era, because at that time, the basic structures of our society were shaken and shifted, some for the good, some for the bad. An example of the good side the substantial involvement of women and ethnic minorities in the effort to defeat Hitler and his allies caused women and ethnic minorities when the war was over to demand equal treatment under the law, which of course they deserved. And so in some ways, the shaking up of our society was a good thing because we were in patterns that were not, I think, healthy or glorifying to God. But on the bad side, this impulse to challenge genuine inequities in our society gave rise to a spirit of rebellion against authority. And this led the children of the 50s and especially of the 60s to question everything and to challenge everything and to shake up everything. In those days, substantial efforts were made to challenge the institution of marriage, the ancient and traditional structure of the family unit, the practice of sexuality in private and in public the nature of gender and what constitutes a man and what constitutes a woman, the proper way that business and government should be conceived, especially with regard to how men and women should relate in those contexts. And of course, even the authority of the Bible and the very existence of God was questioned in those days. And in those days, plans were made to turn these challenges into changes by placing certain people in positions of power in government and in education and in the corporate world and even in religious systems in our society. And while we could spend a lot of time pressing into the details of these things and offering proofs of the kinds of things that I have just claimed, I would rather make better use of the time and just get to the root of the matter. From my point of view, the root of the intense culture war that we're experiencing right now comes down to a very, very simple thing. It is this simple question that Satan asked of Adam and Eve all the way back in the garden. And it's simply this, did God really say? Did God really say? To my mind, from what I can see as I pray and think about these things, It looks to me like for the first time in American history, the biblical foundations of our culture have been intensely questioned and openly attacked. There may have been times where these things were privately questioned and privately attacked or at least somewhere under the radar, but now it's just all out in the open, isn't it? Nobody's hiding their cards. It's all on the table. This is no doubt the most intense spiritual war that I think has ever taken place in the history of our Nation, perhaps I'm wrong about that. Sometimes a lack of of, uh, perspective causes you to see things out of perspective, but I may not be wrong about that, though, on the other hand. Our founding fathers and mothers believed a mixture of things about God and the Bible, but I don't think that it's inaccurate. I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that pretty much all of them did believe that the God of the Bible was necessary to any truly democratic society. I've read the documents. Even philosophical deists like Thomas Jefferson plainly saw that the God of Islam could never even conceive the United States, much less create it. 
And he could see that the God of the Bible was necessary to the creation of a free society, a truly democratic society. Though he himself rejected that God, he argued that that God was necessary for the foundation of this culture. To be clear, the founding fathers and mothers of our country were far from perfect people. Just for one example, many of them owned other human beings. Not a good thing. And even if you could show that some of them were benevolent to their slaves, the fact remains, the ironic fact remains, that while they were arguing for freedom from their oppressors, they were in fact oppressing others in very significant ways. I've heard African-American friends of mine push back on this whole thing about getting America back to our foundations. And they say, you realize if we go back there, I'm gonna be owned by somebody, don't you? I don't wanna go back there. So I don't wanna create an overly idealized vision of the United States, beloved, as if there was ever a time when the kingdom of God and the nation of America were essentially one and the same. There will always be a massive gulf between the kingdom of God and the nations of this world, no matter how much a particular nation tries to honor God and live with a benevolent spirit. But having said that, I do also want to say that the founders of our country in all of their brokenness did try to found a society on biblical principles. I don't know how you can get around that fact when you fairly read all of the documents and do your research well. They saw that the existence of God and that the speech of God was fundamental to human society and particularly to democratic society. They saw that without God's speech there was no basis for morality, for industry, for governments. Our founding fathers, broadly speaking, argued that God is, that God speaks, and that his existence and his speech are fundamental to society. Broadly speaking, they understood that human freedom arises from submission to God because God in the end is the only being who is truly, absolutely, infinitely free. He's the only one who accounts to no one. And so in order for human freedom to work, we must account to the one who accounts to no one. Without that, democracy is impossible. In the 1950s and the 1960s, these assumptions were aggressively and systematically and sometimes violently challenged and attacked. And to my mind, what we're experiencing right now is simply a fruit of this fact. To my mind, we are simply experiencing the fruit of the answer, no, to the question, did God really say? Did God really define marriage in a certain way and mean it? Many people are answering no right now. Did God really say that a family should be structured in a certain way over a lifetime? Many people are answering no right now. Did God really say that he created a man to be a man and a woman to be a woman with no admixture between the two? Many people are saying no to that question right now. In fact, some are asking, did God really say anything at all? Did God speak? And if God did speak, could we understand him? In fact, does God even exist? What is God? Who is God? Do we have to account to anybody for anything? Aren't we free just to create a society on our own assumptions and for our own purposes? Did God really say? The answer no to these questions denigrates God and it devastates society. 
I hope that you have ears to hear what I'm saying this morning. It denigrates God. It devastates society. Kim and I attended a wedding yesterday. And on the upside, every time I go to a wedding, I just want to get married again. In fact, when they said I do, I whispered, I went over and whispered, I do. And she did the same thing to me. I just want to marry her all over again. And I realized we don't have to have a new wedding, Kimmy. You know how people renew their vows? Every time we go to a wedding, we just renew our vows. That's how it works. That was the upside of it. Very exciting. It was really moving to me. The other thing that we talked about, though, somehow we got in a conversation about the creation of no-fault divorce in the 60s and 70s. And I didn't say it to her because it wasn't the right time or context, but no-fault divorce absolutely destabilized our society. It took out the, the fundamental building brick of society and ripped it to pieces. And that's what we're dealing with now. That's what we're seeing now. The, the answer no to this question is devastating to society. Absolutely devastating. For those of us who believe in Jesus Christ and by his grace have gained eyes to see things for what they are, it's painful to watch this and experience it, isn't it? It's painful. It is hard to live in the chasm between our intercession and our experience. It is painful to live in the gap between what we hope for our culture and what we see in our culture. It's depressing to long for people to know Jesus Christ and all that he is for them and yet to watch them bitterly and aggressively oppose Jesus when all he's trying to do is give them everything. It's painful, isn't it? And I think the more we pray, the more pain we bear. It's good for those of us who are seeking to share Jesus with our culture to acknowledge this pain. And it's also important for us, it's necessary for us to put this pain in a broad perspective. It's necessary for us to watch or, or to read the Bible and to allow God to open our eyes to his purposes and his promises and his plans for the world. Because if we could see things from his perspective, I think we would actually be encouraged rather than discouraged. And my hope for today, my prayer for today is that as we look at the end of Paul's journey to Rome and the conclusion of the book of Acts, that we will be encouraged to see that God is in control, that he knows exactly what he's doing. I pray that we will be filled with the hope that Jesus is bringing everything to its appointed purposes and that nothing or no one will stop him, even the things that seem to be working against Christ are actually working for Christ. Why? Because he's in total control and he knows exactly what he's doing. My prayer is that in the word of God, we will see that today and of course continue to pray for our culture, of course continue to plead with our culture, of course continue to preach into our culture, but with a sense of rest in Christ, a sense of hope in Christ, a sense of boldness and confidence that Jesus at the end of the day, will be exalted among the nations, including our nation. Now last week, you may remember that we watched as the Apostle Paul faced a number of false charges and was forced to endure four separate trials before the leaders of the Jews, before the governor Felix, before the governor Festus, and before King Agrippa. Each of the Roman leaders found Paul to be innocent. But they did not release him from custody, first of all, because they were trying to do a favor to their political friends, but second of all, because Paul had actually appealed to Caesar, and by the force of law, they were required to keep him in custody. 
In one sense, this was a sad thing because Paul was in fact innocent and yet he was treated like a guilty man and he was kept in a minimum security prison for two years for nothing. We just read the story, right? We go on with our lives. But I want you to take just a second and think about what you would feel like if you were stuck in a prison for two years of your life for doing nothing. What would that feel like? In one sense, that's a sad story. But in another sense, this was an exciting story because in truth, Jesus was in perfect control of the situation and his design was to plot a course by which Paul could preach the gospel to the Supreme Court of Rome and in fact to the Emperor Nero. Whatever you read about Nero, whatever you know about him, you need to always keep in mind that somehow, somewhere along the way, the Apostle Paul got to directly face to face preach the gospel to that guy. Emperor Nero will be without excuse because Jesus sent his chief ambassador to proclaim the gospel to the guy who controlled the capital of the Gentile world. Beloved, Paul had to suffer just a little bit. That's the way he put it. It's not the way I'm putting it. He had to suffer just a little bit so that the gospel could be proclaimed throughout the world. So in the end, this was an exciting story because God was in total control, 100% control. When the time was right, Paul, Luke, and several other prisoners were put on a ship in Caesarea where Paul was being held, and they began the long, long journey to Rome. They stopped for a little bit of time in the coastal city of Sidon, and hopefully you'll be able to see the map today. Uh, boy, it's hard to see, but right there where it says number three, you'll see Sidon. And they stopped there just for a brief time, and they, they continued their journey along the northern shores of the Mediterranean Sea. When they reached the city of Myra, Paul and Luke were placed aboard another ship, and though the weather was less than favorable, they attempted to complete the long journey to Italy. And for several reasons, the captain actually thought it would be good to go south rather than straight across the Aegean Sea there. So they went south and underneath the island of Crete, and they stopped in a little town called Fair Haven. When they were there, things a little bit turned from bad to worse, and as Paul was praying, weather-wise, they turned from bad to worse. And as Paul was praying, he thought that it would be best for them to just stay there and hunker down for the winter. But the man who was in control thought that he should listen to the owner of the ship rather than to one of the prisoners of the ship. And so they decided to set out from Fair Haven, which is in the middle of the island, just to try to get to this little town of Phoenix, which is on the west side of the island there. It's only like a 50, 75 mile journey along the coast. And they thought that for sure they could make it and they planned to stay there for the winter. Paul said, don't do it. And the centurion said, we have to do it. So understandable decision, but a really bad idea. Because what happened was, they ended up taking out from that port, and a famous wind, an old fabled wind, called the Nor'easter, started blowing from the north and the east toward the south and the west. And it was so strong that the ship could not resist it. And so the ship began to be blown farther and farther away from the coast, and they tried as hard as they could to get it to go back up. But at some point they realized that Hope was lost and they were not going to be able to reach land, so they just gave up. And day after day, they floated out in the sea. Night after night, they floated out there in the sea. At one point, it said that the clouds covered the stars and they just completely ran out of hope. And they came to a point where they divested the ship of its cargo and of its tackle, just trying to save their lives now. Paul had told them this was going to happen. It's understandable, but they listened to somebody else, and now they're in literally a life and death situation with over 200 people on the boat. Luke, you will remember, was actually on the ship with Paul. 
And so he tells us that they all feared for their lives. But at this very time, Paul sought Jesus, and the Lord was gracious to grant him a vision. And Paul gathered everybody on the ship and told them that vision. So if you look at chapter 27 with me, I want to read from verse 21 through 26. Watch a God who is in control. Men, you should have listened to me and have not set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Paul couldn't help saying, I told you so. Yet now, I urge you to take heart, or more literally, to be of good cheer, to be happy. For there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men. For I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told, but we must run aground on some island. Circumstances look so very bleak, beloved, but Jesus had spoken and he was in complete control. I don't know if you've ever been lost in the middle of a lake or something like that with the wind and the waves blowing and you feel like you're not sure if you're going to get back to land. It's scary enough when that happens on a lake. It would be horrifying if it happens in the middle of an ocean where you can't see anything. No stars, no land, no nothing. Things looked very bleak, but the Lord said he was in control. On the 14th night, the sailors began to suspect that they were nearing land, and soon they confirmed that fact. And when it was clear that they were indeed approaching the land, some of the sailors tried to get off the ship to save their lives. But Paul stopped them and said, listen, if any of these guys take off the ship, we're all going to die. And now the people in charge were listening to Paul. And they said, all right, you guys, on the ship, stay on the ship, you cannot depart. When the sun had risen and the day had dawned, they could see the land, and with a little difficulty, they soon reached that land. It was kind of a pain in the neck what they had to do, but God fulfilled his word completely to Paul. The ship was indeed lost, but 276 souls were saved and they reached dry land. As it turned out, they had drifted to a little place called the island of Malta, which is about 60 miles off of the tip of Sicily. You can kind of see it down there. I really apologize, the map is so hard to see, but it's there, it's number 15 over there on the left. So you can see this crazy circuitous route that they went through and boom, they land there on the Isle of Malta. And praise be to God, the people were extremely friendly. They welcomed them and since it was cold and rainy, they actually even built them a fire. Paul was a hardworking guy. He wanted to do his part. So instead of just standing around, he went around and, and, and gathered firewood. When he threw his firewood into the fire, a viper, in other words, a little poisonous snake, jumped out of the fire and grabbed onto him. I think it means that it opened his mouth and bit him. I grew up in rattlesnake country, so this is real easy for me to imagine. And when it bit him, all the people of Malta said, well, this guy must be an evil guy because even though he's escaped this craziness with the ship, now God has sent a snake to bite him and to kill him. So they figured that they were watching justice right in front of their eyes. But instead, Paul just shook the snake off, and while everybody was standing there waiting for him to die, nothing happened. He's completely unaffected by the snake bite. This turned public opinion pretty radically. And they went from thinking that he was a criminal to thinking that he was a god. It's amazing how quick things can turn on the dime, isn't it? 
Luke doesn't tell us at all how Paul responds to them, which at first I found a little surprising. I was like, Luke, wouldn't you want to tell the story? Certainly God's up to something here. But Luke remains silent because I think he's told us enough stories now that he expects us to be able to get the point. God sent an unusual situation to prove himself so that Paul could preach the gospel. And I am certain in my heart, because we know who Paul is, that he preached the gospel. And God used this to open up another door. The chief guy on the island, his name was Publius. He opened up his home to them. And he was very hospitable to them. He brought them all and he served them. And he allowed them to feast. He was very kind to them. And it turns out that his father was sick with a fever and with a a very bad stomach problem. And so Paul asked, well, do you mind if I go pray for him? And the man said, of course, yes. So Paul goes, he prays over the, the chief man of the island. He prays over his father. And by his grace, Jesus grants this man to be healed, completely healed. The news spreads about this, and so everybody who's sick on the island of Malta now shows up and asks for prayer and asks for healing. And the Lord doesn't always do it this way. But on this particular day, everybody Paul prayed for got healed. And again, Luke doesn't tell us the rest of the story. He doesn't tell us what happened from there, but I think it's because he expects us to be able to fill in the blanks. The Lord sends signs and wonders to open up doors for the gospel and to confirm the truthfulness of the gospel. And so these crazy circumstances of a snake bite, of a shipwreck and a snake bite, and somebody being sick and then a bunch of people being sick, it all turns out to open up a door wide to the proclamation of Jesus Christ. And beloved, I just want to ask you a quick question here, quickly. Do you have eyes to see that all this craziness that Paul went through from being arrested to being falsely imprisoned to having to wait for two years so that he could get on precisely the right ship at the right time to getting on a ship with a captain that wouldn't listen to him to floating out in the middle of the sea risking life and limb and everything, it all was being worked by Jesus Christ to preach the gospel to this little people on the island of Malta. I hope that you can see that this whole story Luke tells is a story of God so loving the world that he sent his only begotten son to the island of Malta through the preaching of Paul so that some of them could be saved. When circumstances seem crazy, when they seem awry, when they seem totally out of control, you can rest in the fact that Jesus knows exactly what he's doing and that he's working out all of his purposes. In the middle of all this, I doubt that Paul had the eyes to see it all. But when it was all over, I'm sure before he took his last breath, he fell to his knees and gave thanks and praise to God who controls all things. Amen? For Paul, when he thought about the control of God over nature, it was no theoretical conversation. He had watched it happen. He had watched God work through everything for the good of people who needed to know him. When the time was right, they departed from this little island They boarded a ship that had been docking there for the winter, and they came to the Italian cities of Syracuse, Regium, and uh, Puccioli, which all are still there today, by the way. It was probably when they reached Puccioli that Christians from around the area who had heard that Paul was coming, they came there to encourage him, to pray with him, to build him up. And Luke tells us that when he saw them, he gave thanks to God, and he took courage. And I wonder if you remember that word from last week, he took courage. It's the exact same word that Jesus spoke to Paul in chapter 23, verse 11, when he was in the prison cell, wondering what was going to happen to his life, and Jesus showed up and said, Paul, take courage. 
I'm with you. You've been faithful to me, and I'm going to use you. Take courage, Paul. Take courage. Two and a half years later, Paul lands in Italy, and he's blessed by all these believers that he probably didn't even know were there. You know, historians still don't understand how the Church of Rome exploded the way that it did. When Paul got there, there's already a strong church there. Nobody knows how it happened. God just did it. So Paul is surprised by all these people who are coming to encourage him and pray for him. He took courage. Why? Because Jesus was saying, Paul, the word I spoke to you two and a half years ago is still valid today. I am with you. I am in control of everything. I have used you. I will continue to use you. Have faith. Fix your eyes on me. Look to me. Believe in me. Trust in me. Hope in me. Don't worry about your circumstances. Look right at me. Let everything else go. Oh, beloved, what an amazingly encouraging, gracious God that we have. Amen. He just, he just stuns me. When they finally reached Rome, Paul was allowed to stay in some sort of residence, probably a house, and all he had to have was a soldier there to guard him. So basically, he was under house arrest. And after three days of settling in and resting, Paul, not being one to waste time, he called all of the Jewish leaders to himself. There were in Rome in those days 10 or 12 synagogues that we know of. One count said 13, but probably it was somewhere between 10 and 12 synagogues. And there they gathered with Paul where he said this, if you look at chapter 28, verses 17 through 20. Brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. When they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty. They wanted to set me free because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you, since it was because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. Man, I love this guy. It's the Jews that are causing him to go through all this pain, and he's still pleading for the Jews, speaking well of the Jews all the way to the end. It's the power of the grace of God in Christ working in him. All of this was news to the Jews of Rome. They had not heard about Paul, and so they, they said, please, can we set a day, and we'd like to come back, and we want to hear from you what you're speaking about, what you're teaching about, because the one thing we know, they said to Paul, is that this way that you're leading, this sect that you're a part of, is spoken against everywhere, so we want to understand more about it. When that day came, not only the Jewish leaders, but pretty much all the Jews who could show up from the city of Rome showed up at Paul's residence. And beginning in the morning, he actually taught them all day long until it was evening. He was testifying about the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus from the law and the prophets. Here's another place to note in your Bible that the apostles taught Jesus from the whole entire Bible. It's all about him. He spent all day carefully, prayerfully, biblically laying out a case for believing in Jesus Christ. Some of the Jews were compelled and persuaded. Most of them were not. And having heard Paul's long and careful case, they began to debate with one another. And so Paul did what he often does. He just quoted the words of Isaiah back to them from chapter 6, verses 9 through 10. And here's what he said. I think this is beginning in... Uh, Acts 28, 25. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, go to this people and say, you will indeed hear, but you will never understand. You will indeed see, 
but you will never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, their ears can barely hear, their eyes have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn and I will heal them. Close quote. And then Paul says, therefore, let it be known to you, Jews of Rome, that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. Luke, again, does not tell us what happened with the Jews in Rome because I don't think he needs to. We get the point. Paul preached the gospel. By and large, the Jews rejected the gospel. This became his entree to share the gospel with the Gentiles. And then Luke just tells us in the final two verses of the book of Acts that Paul was given a tremendous amount of freedom. And he spent two whole years, he was still under arrest, but within his arrest, he was given quite a bit of freedom. And he spent two whole years for a total of like four and a half years of imprisonment proclaiming Jesus Christ. He lived in that place at his own expense. He welcomed all who came to him, which I take to mean Jews and Gentiles alike. And when they came, he proclaimed the kingdom of God and he told them about the Lord Jesus Christ with unhindered boldness. Last verse of the book of Acts. A literal translation of the Greek text for verse 31 would say something like this. It would say that Paul was proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching the things concerning Jesus with all boldness, unhinderedly, unhinderedly. And when you meditate upon the story, I think you get this picture. The book of Acts ends, Paul is in chains, but the word of God is not in chains, amen? Later he would write that. Paul's body was bound, but his mouth was not bound. Paul was captive, but Jesus Christ was not captive. Circumstances were bleak, but Jesus was in total control, 100% control. In fact, besides all the preaching Paul got to do during these two years, you know what else he did? We're pretty certain that this is the time of his life where he wrote the letters of Ephesians, Colossians, Philippians, and Philemon. Isn't that amazing? God used him in in this imprisonment, this false imprisonment, not only to preach the word of God, but to write down the word of God which is preserved down to our day. And it occurred to me the other day, I was reading Colossians for devotional purposes, and it occurred to me that I was getting a peek into what Paul was thinking and feeling and praying about while he was in prison. You wanna go into that prison cell with Paul? Read Ephesians, read Colossians, read Philippians, read Philemon, you'll see what was on his mind, you'll see what was on his heart, you'll see how God had gripped him, you'll see the measure of hope that was in him. Everything circumstantially looked crazy, out of control. But God was in total control, and Paul was at peace. It was Paul who wrote in the prison, don't be anxious for anything, but in everything pray, and God will give you peace, he'll give you hope. And that's exactly what Paul, God did for Paul. And with this, beloved, the book of Acts ends. To me, it's the fitting way to end the book of Acts. The question has always been asked, why did Luke end this in the middle of Paul's story? Why did he do that? He did not bring it to an end. Aren't you a little anxious? Like, what happened? What happened when he got before the Supreme Court? What happened when he got to Nero? What, what happened, what happened, what happened? Silence. We know from history that Paul was released from this imprisonment. He ministered for about two more years. He was then again captured and tried and convicted and he was put to death in AD 64. In that second imprisonment, he wrote 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy and Titus. 
And he said there, I'm about to be poured out like a drink offering. In other words, I'm about to die, but I have fought the good fight. I have kept the faith. I have finished my race. Beloved, Luke knew the rest of the story. Why didn't he write about it? It's a silly thing to say, well, he ran out of paper. He ran out of ink. It wasn't convenient. Ah, not. There's a reason why. You know why? This story is not about Paul. This story is about Jesus Christ. The first half of the book of Acts is mainly about Peter as far as the subject matter goes, but it's really about Jesus. The second half is about Paul, but it's not about Paul. It's about Jesus. It's said in the very opening verses of this book that Jesus Christ was going to build his church through the power of the Holy Spirit and the simple witness of his people. This book from beginning to end has always been about Jesus. And so it ends with these words that he gave his apostle boldness and unhindered ability to preach the gospel of Jesus. In a way, the very last word of the book of Acts is an invitation for the book of Acts to continue to be written by the Holy Spirit. It won't be written on pages, but believe me, when we get to heaven, oh, are we going to hear story after story after story. When you get to be with Jesus Christ, I highly recommend that you go to the seminar that says what happened after Acts 28, 31. It's going to be very long. It's going to take probably 500 years. But it'll be really good. It'll be uh, an attention getter because you'll see that through all these centuries, Jesus Christ was building his church by the power of the Holy Spirit through the witness of his people, no matter what they had to suffer, no matter what the circumstances, no matter the oppositions. Beloved, we've seen in this book internal oppositions that rose up from within the church and threatened to tear it to pieces. But it did not tear it to pieces because Jesus was in total control. He was exalting his name. He was building the church. And who could stop Jesus Christ? Who can do it? We've seen external opposition. We've seen people come in and try to kill the leaders of the church and otherwise oppose the church. But it did not stop the work of the church because Jesus was in total control. And beloved, he's still in total control. He is still building his church. And this is the hope that we have. The great unshakable hope that we have. I was just telling the Lord this morning, I was praying about this, just rejoicing in this, and then I found myself in a little season of doubt about it. You know, I'm getting ready to preach about this, and I'm like, yeah, but Lord, it looks so bleak in the world. And I, I just took a second to rejoice and say, Jesus, one thing I love about you is that no matter when my feelings go up and down, you just stay steady as steady can be. The truth of the control of Christ over all things is true no matter how we think about it, no matter how we feel about it, amen? amen. This is all about him. It is all about him, beloved, and this is the great hope that we had. He who began this good work is going to complete it all the way to the day that he comes back. It could well be said that to this day, the people of God in Christ are proclaiming the word of God, the kingdom of God, and teaching the things concerning Jesus with all boldness and unhinderedly. Just yesterday, Kim and I got to hear an amazing testimony of a guy from Juarez, Mexico, that's just, God is using him in tremendous ways, but it's about Jesus, it's not about this man. And the reason that we're clear and bold and unhindered all around the world is because Christ has kept his word and he's going to keep his word. He has given his spirit and he's given us all that we need to proclaim him. So when we look at the cultural revolution that's sweeping our land right now and leading our people to hell in a handbasket, 
when we carefully think about all that's happening and realize that it's really just the fruit of the rejection of God and the rejection of the gospel, we can nonetheless take heart, beloved, because Christ is in total control. The next time you hear a devastating verdict come out of the Supreme Court, take heart. Jesus Christ is in complete control. Amen? Pray for the land. Work for the land. Plead with the land. Preach the gospel to the land. Fight for justice. Fight for righteousness. Fight for true freedom. But be at peace, beloved. Be at peace. The Lord is in absolute control. He will build his church. He will glorify his name among the nations and nothing will stop him. No one will stop him until the day he returns and every knee bows and every tongue confesses that he is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the destiny of humanity. Let's pray now and give him thanks. Oh, our Father, how we thank you for the power of who you are. How we thank you, Father, for the reality of your purposes and your promises and your plans for this world. How we thank you that the stories we read from days of old are not just stories, but they are living testimonies of a living God who's still working in our land to this day. Father, fill us with the faith that you filled Paul with. Come near to us and teach us to take courage, to have faith, to fix our eyes on Christ, to plead with our people and preach to our people, but to rest in Christ. Be still, know that you are God, that you will be exalted among all of the nations. Oh, Father, we trust this sacred word into your hand and pray now that you would use it to shape the lives of your people. For we pray it in Jesus' mighty and matchless and merciful name, amen.